Happy October. Happy Fall Festival week. Yeah. Happy Reformation month. Yay. Uh, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter one. As you do, I just want to say again uh, how glad I am to be your pastor. Uh, you guys are generous and cheerful in your giving and in your time coming to set up every Sunday. I know it's draining and difficult. Um, do I need to scoop back? Am I good? Okay. Um, also, just am encouraged that you guys are committed to changing and growing in godliness and in living in real love and fellowship and community with one another. And that a couple weeks ago, we had that challenge to get to know each other. And you guys have been having each other into each other's homes. So that's been sweet. And you stepped up to serve the kids. So just thank you guys. Love you. Um, this morning, I want to start with a question. The question is, what would you say are some of the big, biggest weaknesses of the church in America in general? Uh, churches in general. Maybe more specifically, the church or the churches of Evansville. No wrong answers. But what would you say? Hypocrisy? Okay. Hypocrisy. What else? Sorry? Oh, self-help mentality. Yeah, okay. It's good. A lack of shepherding. Pastoral care. What else we got? They're lukewarm, we got over here. All right, lukewarm churches. I would put near the top of the list a general lack of discernment and a general lack of willingness to cultivate discernment, a lack of commitment to discernment, a lack of understanding about the role that discernment plays in loving our neighbors as ourselves. And so this week we're going to go ahead and are going back through Philippians chapter 1. So we're, we're still in verses uh, 1 to 11. We're going to focus in on verses 9 to 11 today. This is a prayer at the end of Paul's introduction to, his, uh, to this letter. We read it a couple weeks ago. We covered it briefly. But just like last week's passage, I decided that it's worthwhile to zoom in on this this morning because it deals with a question that I think is difficult for churches like ours to deal with, which is the relationship between love and knowledge and discernment. We got to get this right as a church if we're going to be a godly church. So I want to take the opportunity this morning to focus in on that. And this is the prayer, Philippians chapter 1, beginning with verse 9. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you that we live in a city where community events like our fall festival are valued, and we pray that you would keep everyone safe this week and that it would be fun for our community and that you would use it to provide money for good ministries and services throughout the tri-state area. And we thank you, especially this morning, for the healthy birth of Matthew Abrams, and we thank you that Ashley's doing well. Pray that you would bless Matthew and that you'd raise him to hate his sin and to love his Savior, and that you would cause him to grow godly and strong in Christ. We pray for Evan's arm and Danny's arm, that you would heal them. And we thank you for men and women serving in child care this morning, serving our kids. We pray that you'd be with them as they serve and that you give them love and patience and wisdom. And we pray that you'd work through their teaching this morning so that the kids may know you and be known by you and walk in your ways. We thank you for our presbytery, 
our fellowship of churches. And as we look forward to a week ahead of us where our pastors and elders come together, we pray that you would give us love for one another and unity of spirit and the service of building your kingdom. Pray that you would be with me as I prepare to preach to all of these pastors and elders and that you'd use me to encourage them all in the work of ministry. We pray and trust that the report of your work here at Church of the King would be a great encouragement to all of them. Pray that your word would be faithfully preached this morning in every church in this city, that you grant repentance to the weak and the wayward, that you cause the name of Jesus to be exalted. We pray for ourselves now as we come to your word that you would humble our hearts before you, that you would speak to us, that you would give us your Holy Spirit, that you'd give me your words, and that you would cause us all to leave here changed and transformed and better equipped to bear fruit to the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. There are a couple of things I want to point out this morning about this prayer before we move into the substance of the passage itself. The first is that it happens. Paul prays for his people. This is one of the best churches that we see in all of Scripture, and Paul still prays for them, and it's a prayer that urges them to continue growing in the Lord. There's never a point in the Christian life where we get to slow down or look back and say, we've made it. There are times to stop and say, look at what God did. Look at how far we've come. Look what God has done. And to reflect on that sort of thing. That's how the passage opens up, right? I thank my God and all my remembrance of you always for all of these reasons. Look at what God has done. I thank God for all that he's done over the last 10 years in the life of this church. There's a time and place to stop and think, especially maybe when things feel futile, of what God has done for us personally, in the life of our church, in the world generally. And it's something that we should do often, not just for ourselves personally, but in our families. You husbands and wives ought to do that sort of thing too. Some of you maybe don't take time to talk much and you need to talk about your problems and maybe start having some fights and air conflict that's underneath the surface and open up, identify problems. But others have realized that that's important, and sometimes you need to stop and take time to step back and look at what God has done and look at how far he's brought you year to year, five years to five years, 10 years to 10 years, 15 to 20 to whatever, and to take heart. How many insurmountable challenges have been surmounted in your life and in your marriage and in your kids. Take heart, take courage, thank God for it. That's how this passage begins, right? And then it moves to, okay, now let's press on. Let's move into more. And that's what this passage is about. This prayer is urged at the end to get the, uh, or it's urging the church at Philippi to keep growing. Second, the prayer is simple and direct and thoughtful. It's not rambling. It's not a bunch of spiritual babble and words put together that repeat over and over again. It has meaning. It has purpose. It's considered. It's instructive without just being sort of like a sermon that's not really a prayer. You know, it's sermon coded as a prayer. It's not that. And the only obvious application I want to make about that is that it's okay for our prayers to be short and simple and direct. It's okay if they're not long-winded and full of repetition. We don't find many prayers in scriptures that are in scripture that are that way, actually. A lot of simple and direct people who are just talking to God like he's a person that hears them, because he is. So short and sweet and to the point. Okay. Now, step back and remember the church at Philippi. Remember the chaos and the suffering and the pain that they're walking through. The difficulty of this church. What does the Apostle Paul pray for them? 
Is it for comfort? Is it for peace? Is it for ease of their pain and suffering? It's not for any of those things, is it? What's it for? It's for love. It's that their love would abound. The aim of the Christian life is not to avoid pain. It's not what's on the radar here. A lot of pain in this church, but the aim is not to avoid pain. It's not about securing our rights and privileges either. It's about loving others. We're to love our neighbors. And that means things like pursuing justice and mercy for the sake of others, for love of our neighbor, for the widow and orphan in their distress is what James says is pure religion, which I bring up again because I want to check ourselves because, again, it's easy for us as we watch in our country the erosion of our civil liberties to get fired up about our own rights and our own privileges being taken away. If our concern is just about us and how things touch us personally and immediately, then we're the problem. We're part of how we got here. We're too selfishly concerned about ourselves and our bank accounts and our ease. And we have passively allowed people to suffer under injustice in our country for years. The unborn children, our unborn neighbors, have been murdered under rule of law for 50 years almost. For instance, while we've been content because it's not touched us. If that is us, we're part of the problem. Someone who's willing to sacrifice their own children is willing to sacrifice yours too. And look, I understand that some of us in this room have maybe had abortions or paid for them, okay? But we're talking about what the church does and the church loves and the church leads through repentance, renewed zeal and love for our neighbor, starting with those at the margins of society. The goal, the end game for us as Christians is to grow in our love, love for each other, love for our neighbor. That's what God requires of us. But real love, love that is sacrificial, love for each other, love for our neighbor, love that's willing to suffer. Love is what God requires of us, but what does God require of our love? What does he pray for here? He prays that our love would abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Love is the fundamental principle, but love without knowledge is love without a target. Love without discernment is a gun without sights or a scope. It's nothing more than undirected sentiment or general niceness. But there's a problem. And the problem is niceness is not a biblical virtue. It's not. And all our sentimental, nice, well-intentioned, but undiscerning attempts to love people in situations that we don't understand can cause serious problems. It can be pretty unloving. It can be pretty selfish, actually. It can be a lot about us. There's a fine little book about how many missions efforts that we make end up being actively destructive because they're more about us and how we feel and our sense to be uh, of love than they are actually about helping other people. Missionary kid in Cameroon in the back nodding his head. This is a big deal. The book I'm talking about is called When Helping Hurts. It's essential reading if you care about modern missions. That brings me back to where we started, which I think is that the lack of discernment and under, uh, the lack of understanding of the place of discernment is one of the most fundamental problems that we face as a church today. Discernment is just the ability to take what we know and to discern what's best, what's good, what's evil, what's good, better, best. Churches tend to divide in one of two camps. There are a handful of churches that think of themselves as being truly discerning. And, or uh, 
God forbid, intellectual. I once had a pastor brag to me that his church was considered the intellectual church. It's a pretty weird flex. Those types of churches think of themselves as discerning, but their knowledge has lost its purpose. Their knowledge has lost its purpose. They've forgotten that knowledge and discernment are meant to be in service of love, in the service of others. Instead, discernment is used in service of themselves. You see this in people who have been hurt and self-protective. You cultivate discernment so that you can use it as armor to protect yourself and to puff up your ego. Protect yourself from criticism, beyond the offensive, so that you don't have to have any defensive measures. I know better than you. I see this clearly. I have wisdom and insight that you don't have. There's nothing you can tell me that I don't already know. You're stupid. These are the ways that we protect ourselves from being vulnerable to other people, vulnerable to correction, vulnerable to the pain of disappointment when others don't see and respond to your discerning love. But that kind of discernment is only self-serving. And it's not the stuff of leadership either. People don't trust or follow selfish jerks who sit in judgment on everyone else. All that's left is to grow in bitterness as leadership flows to people that you see as beneath you. You know those types of people? Have you been, been those types of people? Are they the most common? When we look around our city, what do we see? When we look in our own hearts, what do we see? Some of that? Yeah. Thanks, Kai. Guilty as charged. What else do we see, though? Isn't what we really see more a false idea of love that is absence of any ability to discern what's excellent and what's good and what's true and what's evil? Isn't it as much a sort of principle that Christians should lack discernment because love and discernment are opposed to each other? That love should be blind, that love should make no judgments? Isn't what we see more than anything a commitment to a sort of lowest common denominator bland niceness? where Christians go along to get along and feel pressure to approve and smile and nod and affirm every destructive behavior and lifestyle and decision in the name of love, where we're expected to never say anything to each other about the things we see, where we're committed to not being helpful, but to being unhelpful, to being nice. But as I said before, niceness is not a biblical virtue. Niceness is not love. Sentiment is not love. Approval is not love. Love sees what's in the best interest of others, and love acts, often at great personal cost. Sometimes at at only the personal cost of a little bit of effort. Here's an example. I'm going to try something here. I just kind of keep hearing ringing and feedback, and it's driving me nuts. Okay. I don't know what's going on. Just bouncing. All right. Gems, what can you do? All right. Here's here's my example. Uh, There used to be a crisis pregnancy center at... uh, really close to the entrance of USI. Crisis Pregnancy Center, right by the campus of USI. Do you know what happened? What did they do? They moved. They moved pretty far away from campus and they renamed themselves a health center. Now, what's your gut reaction to that? Your gut reaction to that, my gut reaction to that is, wait, 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 really? You're going to take the Crisis Pregnancy Center away from the place where it may be needed most, where there may be girls 18, 19, 20, 21, who are pregnant and in trouble, you're going to move it somewhere else, and you're going to call it a health center? But I was talking to the person who actually was behind that decision, and she said, and I was asking her about it, and she said, you know what? Actually, the number of, uh, of girls and USI students that come in for help have gone up since we've moved away from campus and renamed and added other health services. 
Why? Actually, put yourself in the shoes, this is her to me, put yourself in the shoes of a 19-year-old girl on USI's campus. Do you want to walk into the crisis pregnancy center right at the mouth of campus where all your friends may see you? Moving it away gives you some sense of anonymity, actually. Renaming it a health center and adding a couple other services provides a little bit of plausible deniability. We've actually counseled more people, more girls away from abortion by doing that, by thinking about it, than we did before. Whoa, okay, all right. That looked like a soft move, right? It was a discerning move. If she's right about that, that was smart. Love presses us to think carefully about how we love other people. How do we love people unless we're wise enough to distinguish between good and evil and to approve what's truly excellent? We can't love people and be content with the wisdom and knowledge that we have. Not if we really love them. Love will drive us to set our life's course on the path of wisdom and knowledge and discernment so that we can love people better. Do you want to love people? Really love them? Get wisdom, get insight. The beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. Whatever you get, get insight. Proverbs. Discernment's difficult. It requires effort and sacrifice. It requires risk. So it's hard. It's one thing to tell someone you love them. It's another thing to love them. And loving them often means saying something hard. We talked about this at our men's group, not this weekend, but a couple weeks back, about how sometimes loving people, really loving them, means being willing to put your relationship on the line with them. I was talking to a friend not too long ago. Uh, You may have met him. He came and he worshiped here. He was in town because his father died. And his father was a chronic liar and uh, had a whole bunch of people deceived about a whole lot of things. Uh, His father had a friend, and that friend started to unravel things and figure things out and just expose the lies of his life. Wrecked his life, short term. Blew everything apart. Job, marriage, everything. It also led to him moving into repentance for his sin and trusting the Lord. And then he died before that relationship was ever healed. So that man who exposed the lies of his friend went for like eight or 10 years being completely estranged from his friend, came to the funeral where he was embraced and loved and greeted with weeping joy by the sons of the man who died. Because God had worked through that tough love, that willingness to sacrifice the relationship and allowed at least their relationship to be restored to their father through the process. Discernment, love, is risky. Being willing to have your eyes open, see what you see and say hard things, is risky. The purpose of our discernment is to better love our neighbor. Or as Paul puts it in this passage, to approve what is excellent, so that you may approve what is excellent. And then he gives a little further color to what that means. To approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, which is to avoid evil and filled with the fruit of righteousness, that is to do what's right. But the way he frames it is helpful because it's very easy to get caught up in smaller questions. The church of Corinth did that. They got caught up in smaller questions all the time. They sent Paul a letter with questions about what's permissible? Can we do this? Can we do that? What's okay? What can we get away with? And Paul wrote back and basically said, wrong question. Wrong question. The question isn't what can you get away with? What's permissible? That's children talking. 
what can I get away with? The question for the godly mature Christian is what is beneficial? What's actually good? What's best? What is excellent? The art of life is the ever-increasing pursuit of what's best. What's most excellent? It's the art of saying no to what's good in favor of what's better and what's better in favor of what's best. So as he neared the end of his letter to the church at Corinth, after answering a bunch of questions about what's permissible and saying, wrong question, guys, wrong question, and dealing with issue after issue, addressing this question and that abuse, do you know what he said? He said, now I will show you a still more excellent way. You've heard this at weddings all the time because it's beautiful and poetic and feels romantic, but it's actually pretty hard and risky and vulnerable and painful. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Beautiful, poetic, but risky, vulnerable. It requires discernment to love and to love well. We are God's workmanship, remember last week, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Sermon on the Mount. Let your light shine before men so that they may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father in heaven. God wants the world to see his glory on display. That's the end of this passage, right? It's the end of this passage. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. God wants to see his glory on display, and it's seen in the love of his saints for one another and for their neighbor as we perform good works, wise deeds, driven by love for the good of others, often at great personal costs. Because our goal is to love as he has loved us, with knowledge and discernment, approving what is excellent, being pure and blameless, being filled with the fruit of righteousness, bringing glory to our Father in heaven. So how do we do that? How do we grow in wisdom and knowledge and discernment? Hebrews 5 says this, by constant practice, by constant practice, in things big and small. We want to be a church that loves and that loves well, that loves with discernment, whose love abounds with knowledge, and all discernment. And that means we have to give ourselves to the practice of discerning good from evil. Baby steps, big and small, wherever we can. Ask the question, is this good? Is this excellent? Does it honor God? What does the Bible say? What would Solomon say? What would Paul say? What would Jesus say? In all kinds of things that we do, should we watch this movie as a family? What's it teaching? Is this the best way to love and serve our family? Is this the best way to love and serve our church, our neighbor? Don't let ourselves off the hook with easy answers either. Don't get crippled by everything has to be like the perfect godly best thing ever, right? We have a lot of liberty in Christ, but also ask the question. Press deeper and deeper into things. Study God's word so you can apply it to all of life. So it can work down into the nooks and crannies of life. All of life and godliness is here. And God's word applies to everything. But the way we grow in wisdom and knowledge and discernment is by practicing asking the question, what does God's word say? Is this good? Is this bad? What's good about it? What's bad about it? 
How do I know? We have to think critically about things. We have to exercise that. We have to teach our kids to exercise that kind of discernment too. There's nothing that doesn't go under the radar of God's word. So baby steps as we learn to love each other and grow in discernment and knowledge. Is this good? Is it okay? Is it excellent? All right. We're finally after uh, today going to move on to the next section. But let's see if we've understood these first 11 verses better than we ever have before, okay? Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Father, we thank you for giving us your word and for teaching us and for gathering us here this morning to worship you. Pray that you would have mercy on us and that you would give us wisdom and faith and discernment so that we may love well. In Jesus' name, amen.